I'm Sinan Aral, and this is The Digital Insider, where we get to the real hard science behind the digital economy and explore the latest trends in digital business and society with the world's leading thinkers and doers. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, I'm extremely pleased to start this next panel, which I think is an incredibly important one. Uh, about the war in Ukraine, about the information war in Ukraine. And I say that in that order for a reason. Uh, I think it's really important to remember during this conversation uh, that the actual war is the story. The information war is an important input to that story, uh, but there are real uh, military operations going on, real people dying every day. And I don't want this to be some esoteric conversation about technology uh, while losing the uh, conceptualization and thread that, that, that there is an actual war on the ground going on, uh, killing innocent people every single day. I'm joined by an esteemed panel uh, with an extreme amount of knowledge um, uh, about this topic. Uh, first, Natalia Levina. She's a professor at the NYU Stern School of Business. Uh, she is also Ukrainian and has uh, family in Kharkiv and has an insider perspective on what's happening on the ground uh, in Ukraine through her daily conversations with her family members, as well as uh, family members and friends who are now refugees. Um, she has been researching information systems for many years. She does a lot of work on crowdsourcing of information. She does a lot of work on information and communication and organizations. Uh, Natalia, it's fantastic to have you here for a variety of reasons. Also, uh, Rick Stengel, who is uh, a political analyst at CNBC. I love that, that, that he gives that as his title uh, because he is an extremely esteemed person, uh, former undersecretary of state for public diplomacy and public affairs, former editor of Time magazine, author of a fantastic book called Information Wars, which is highly relevant to uh, the conversation today about his experience uh, of the information war uh, from inside the Obama administration uh, in thinking about how Russia uses information. Rick, it's fantastic to have you. And uh, Clint Watts, <clears throat> who's a distinguished research fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, but also former special agent FBI uh, on the Joint Terrorism Task Force and author of Messing with the Enemy, where he details uh, some uh, really incredible stories of fighting terrorism online. Uh, he is one of the world's experts on information wars, and uh, I couldn't think of uh, three better people to be having this conversation with. We've got a lot to get to, so I want to get uh, right into it. And Natalia, I want to start with you. Um, you know, you have family in Ukraine. Uh, you know, you're also a professor that studies uh, this type of information and communication. What are you hearing uh, from Ukraine today on the ground uh, and as well your experience uh, through those family members and friends that you have in Ukraine. Um, what, what can you tell us about what's going on today? Well, first of all, thank you, Sinan, for inviting me and for giving me this forum to speak about the events in Ukraine. Um, well, first, as I, I've been studying and doing work in this field for many years and teaching, and for all these years, most of my students had no idea where Ukraine is and for sure had no idea where Kharkiv was. And today it's unfortunate that I don't have to start my classes by saying, hey, let's locate 
where I'm from on the map, uh, because my city, um, Kharkiv, was destroyed, as many of you know, from the very first days with nonstop bombardment, because it's only really um, less than 20 miles from the Russian border. Um, I, um, the, my day often starts with looking at what's going on in Kharkiv, and every day I hope uh, that basically the bombardment of the city is less, but every day I wake up, including today, with the news that the bombardment um, and the shelling of the city intensified yet again. It feels that impossible like to have any more. Um, and, and then like many, many Ukrainians or even Russians um, who have family in Ukraine nowadays starts by texting people we have there. And one of the things that I realized during this crisis was why during many conflicts, people who can evacuate don't all evacuate. So it's I, I, something that was a mystery to me um, as a Jewish person um, who saw how many people uh, stayed in occupied territories knowing what Nazis were doing with the Jews as to why people would not leave. But now I actually unfortunately know an answer to this question and that's because elderly people are often not in condition to leave. And uh, I have three aunts, average age 80. So, um, and they're simply too frail. Um, I have another aunt who's undergoing cancer treatment, which of course has stopped. They cannot leave. That means that their uh, children have, my cousins have a very tough choice, right? If was it to go somewhere and leave their parents behind, not to mention animals, which is another big issue. And people are very hesitant. So for my family, for first two weeks of the war, everybody stayed put in Kharkiv under bombardment. So my morning started was just checking if they are alive. So the first message is, how are you? And the answer, we are alive. Um, and that happens usually through some sort of personal media. I then also kind of follow what happened. And so just to give you a perspective, the house I grew up in was, uh, you know, a missile fell there. I think after first week of the war, so my house is gone. The university I went to is partially bombed. Uh, the gym of the university where I played um, a badminton has been shelled. Like this is sort of every day you wake up with, what else can they do? Oh, right, the place where I was learning English after school, that one is now gone as well. So, um, but speaking more of a subject of information uh, wars. So we do have this personal exchange uh, with my relatives just see what's really happening. I talked to my cousins who are all in civil, signed up for civil defense now, and some of them are bringing humanitarian aid and talking to them about um, things that actually, I don't think are covered in the media, especially US media as much, are the number of collaborators, unfortunately, that uh, Russian government has on the ground. Um, just. Uh, Kharkiv is, was 90%, sorry, Russian speaking, uh, 90% just majority and still is. Uh, but among this big population, a handful, small percentage are collaborating and that creates a lot of damage. Um, the other thing I was gonna, uh, that I could tell you sort of from the ground is the focus over time that I've been following this, it's as, as many Ukrainians now count this, this is the 35th day of the war. It's not uh, April, March 31st, sorry, New York sound. <laughs> um, and what, what we see is, of course, now I'm communicating with people um, who, so some of the younger women with children have left for Poland. 
And one of the things, so I talk to them, I help them with housing, uh, if I can, both monetarily and just through social network. And the one of the things I was going to say about that is, uh, and it's not reported as much, is that every single person I talked to who made it to Poland after many, many, many conversations that you have to take your children out of this, is that we're going to Ukraine tomorrow. They literally so say, let, let me help you find housing. Oh no, we're going back to Ukraine tomorrow. They're so focused on we're gonna win and we'll come back there. They're really sort of amazing the spirit of wanting to go back. And uh, the last thing I was gonna mention more from the standpoint of, um, so my, my, my hat as a researcher, the grassroots campaign, the grassroots organizing around helping people and helping the army has been amazing. Like, again, the day could start with somebody on Facebook, a friend of a friend saying, we know that people in this hospital where my husband's classmate is a doctor really need this catheters. So everybody in the network is looking for medical catheters of a particular size that would then be shipped. And uh, this is, and this brings me to this point that to me, this crisis pool put uh, the direct friendship relationships back into social media. So the social media about which you wrote so much, right, sort of thrives on really impersonal or um, sort of pseudo-personal connections, right? We build this relationship with people we have met once in our lives or not at all. In this crisis, we build this relationship with people we actually know but haven't talked to for 30 years. And this network's extremely strong. That's where trusted information and opportunities for help go through. And that's where I also see what's happening in other cities. And so that has been quite interesting to see this revival of interpersonal networks um, and people reaching out to me as a professor and say, how could I help? And I would know if my aunt's neighbor who's, uh, who has a cow and the cow, uh, like I'm, I'm telling you a true story, the, the neighbors in an isolated region where she cannot flee. And the hay for the cow was burned by the uh, bombs that fell in their yard. So she needs money to buy hay for this cow. And she's saying, can you send them money? The most amazing thing is that this sounds to me like even 18th or 19th century story. But the fact that they can send her the money, Ukrainian currency in five minutes and in a bombshell, she can check on her phone that she received it is what makes this time and our history surreal. Sorry yeah, for a long almost, intro, but this is sort of what my life has been like outside teaching <laughs> for the last it's, a, it's It's activation of the traditional kinship and friendship networks through the digital channels. Do you know uh, from your perspective and, and vantage point there what they're using most? Is it Facebook? Is it WhatsApp? Is it text messaging? So we talk, if we're talking about their media, what I know um, they... To the best of my knowledge, the tech-savvy people getting most of the news from Telegram. So people subscribe to Telegram channels, and that's where they get most of the news, which we could talk about more professionally, right? Because the channels are not really monitored. It's really kind of hierarchical governance. It's whatever the person puts on the channel is what, what is seen as truth. So, um, and it cannot be, right? So just to give you another little perspective, like what you mentioned is some of the pro-Russian telegram channels operating in Kharkiv region and in Ukraine more broadly, um, in the early days of the war started posting you know, military information, right? Pictures of here is an, a Ukrainian soldier and let's sort of helping Russian army advance. 
Uh, so actually, again, grassroots, a group of us try to do something about it. And we learn very quickly how little we can do with direct encrypted communication, right? So it's very different from, so I reached out to, to people in, in WhatsApp to say what channels could be used. And basically the answer is nothing, right? Because WhatsApp has to comply with regulation of the US government. Uh, it's very hard to make those regulations work for Telegram. So you have to have grassroots effort, efforts to undermine um, the channel, which is the fascinating story of the difference between social media. Yeah, and I think that uh, that is the double-edged sword of Telegram, which we're going mm -hmm. to definitely mm -hmm. get to uh, in just a minute. Natalia, thank you. I definitely am going to come back to you very, very shortly to, to um, get your perspective uh, again uh, shortly. I want to turn to Rick uh, for a second. Rick, you wrote this fantastic book uh, on information wars. You've been thinking about um, information wars and, and Russian information operations uh, in the broader geopolitical landscape for quite a while. Uh, you certainly have followed uh, everything that happened uh, during the Crimean annexation in 2014 uh, very closely, intimately, and have seen everything evolve since then. So I wanted to get your perspective on Russia then and now. What, what does Russia, Russian information operations and information war tactics look like now compared to then? Has it evolved? Is it more precise, more advanced? Is it the same? Are they falling behind? Are they lagging now? Uh, what, what is your sense of the evolution of the Russian side of this information war? Thank you, Sanan, and uh, it's great to be with you and, and thank your wonderful alma mater, MIT. Um, it's an important topic, as you said, and it's important that you said at the top that the information war is not the war. The, the brutal aggression of Russia against a basically defenseless enemy is the war, uh, where thousands of people are getting killed every day. Um, information war, you know, we so much in our society now where we where social media has seemed to actually replace reality or social relations. And I'm glad that uh, Natalia mentioned that kind of reinvigoration of, of, of friendship networks within social networks. Um, it's a very good question because I, I uh, you mentioned my book because a lot of my book is about Russian disinformation efforts uh, in 2014 and 2015 around the what we then called the annexation of Crimea, which we are now calling the first invasion of Ukraine. And in fact, that was an example of the sort of hesitancy of the US government around the Russian actions uh, that we didn't really call it what it was. And, um, and we didn't really know what it was, which, bring, which brings me to your question, because one of the advantages that Russia had in 2014 in Crimea was that it was a stealth operation. I mean, compared to now, I mean, the, the invasion of, of Ukraine where they massed 180,000 troops over weeks on the Ukrainian border that the world could see. But what happened in Crimea in 2014, if folks remember, was the, uh, the sneaking in of Crimea of the so-called little green men, uh, which Putin for weeks denied were uh, Russian military, uh, were actually Spetsnaz, the Russian special forces. But, but, you know, and I can't speak for everything that the US government knew, but there was a lot that we didn't know. It was a surprise. What we did know was that the messaging that they had done around the revolution of dignity uh, in Ukraine in 2014 of accusing the Ukrainians of being Nazis or neo-Nazis, of being anti-Semitic, um, 
all of these memes and and kind of symbols that resonate with the Russian audience. And and remember, just in general, I'm going to pull back for one second. Um, there are multiple audiences here, and for Putin, ultimately. His domestic audience is probably his most important audience, the most important circle within the concentric circles. Uh, as Americans, we, because we're narcissists, we tend to think everybody's messaging to us and that's all that they're thinking about. But that's not all that Vladimir Putin is thinking about. So what, what grew out of that annexation of 2014 um, was the Internet Research Agency um, in St. Petersburg, which already existed, which was creating messaging uh, for, around the, uh, the upheaval in Ukraine. Um, and then they transferred it to the, you know, the, the 2016 election. Um, what they used then uh, were cutouts, bots, uh, fake personas. And one of the things that I write about in the book is that it's, it's not that they were so good, it's that we were so susceptible. Um, you know, disinformation uh, is uh, always seeks a kind of a buyer's audience, um, and 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 people are receptive to it. So if you look back at the kind of content they were creating around 2014, even focused on Ukraine, it was simple. Uh, it wasn't smart, wasn't witty. When they the, the stuff they did in English in 2014 was was ungrammatical. Uh, poor use of American idioms. Um, but as someone once explained to me, the, uh, it's like the, the emails that you get from the, from the prince in you know, New Zealand or Africa, wherever it is, asking for money for a million dollars and you'll get you know, 10 million back and it's filled with grammatical mistakes and spelling errors. Marketing guy said, that's deliberate. I said, why is that? He said, because then they know they have you hooked if you respond. If you're not put off by the grammatical mistakes and the bad idioms, you're a sucker. And that is what happened in, in 2016 and the stuff that the, that the Russians did here. Um, again, it's not that it was so, su 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 uh, so successful or so sophisticated, it's that we were so susceptible. Uh, cut to uh, this invasion and, and you know, every, the Russian messaging has seemed antiquated, very yesterday, um, very clunky. And by the way, they are clunky, um, but they had uh, the advantage of surprise in 2014, which they don't have now. So we just saw, we have, we've seen how clunky they are, uh, how uncreative they are, which again, they were back then. And, um, and in fact, it surprises me, and, I, and Clint knows way more about Russian messaging than I do, but the you know, part of the, the Russian ethos is, is of hybrid warfare, as we call it, uh, the Gerasimov doctrine, who after the, you know, the, the general who's close to Putin, this idea that in modern warfare, four-fifths of it is, is, is not kinetic, is information war, is, is propaganda, etc. They have a kind of a sophisticated 30,000-foot view, but not in terms of executing it. I mean, if that was really your doctrine, you know what they, what you know, Putin should have said is, "I want to see the top ten memes that you're going to release, you know, on the day of the invasion, and you know, show me the, uh, you know, the, the propaganda that we're sending to, you know, Ukrainians, and that they would have this whole information war blocked out like they have their old-fashioned kinetic war." Well, they didn't have that, and and because, uh, you know. 
Putin's expectations and maybe their military's expectations were wrong, that they would be greeted with bouquets of flowers and maybe that would be their, their uh, information, their memes. Uh, in fact, the, you know, the Ukrainians have fought valiantly. They haven't submitted. Uh, if anything, Putin has caused all the things that he didn't want to have happen, which is the consolidation of NATO and the rise of nationalism in Ukraine and appreciation for democracy, but their cupboard was bare. They had nothing. And um, just to my kind of um, artificial eye, and then they were, had been overwhelmed by the, by the creativity and nimbleness of the Ukrainians on all of these, on TikTok, uh, you know, obviously on Facebook and traditional platforms, but, um, you know, people have been calling TikTok war talk. There's so much, you know, U Ukrainian stuff on it. And, and, it, and a lot of it is great. And again, it's witty, quick, uh, et cetera. So the, you know, the short answer to your question, Zinan, is that the, you know, the Russians, Russian 2014 versus Russian 2022 is, is, uh, is like day and night. Um, uh, they've, they've really seemed um, outmastered. They've seen behind the times, uh, years out of date, and, um, and they're paying the price for it. And to go, but to go back where I started, um, when, you know, I also wrote about the counter ISIS messaging we did in government, which was going on at the same time as, as, uh, as the annexation of Crimea. And a, a general, American general said to me, you know, uh, the worst message is when ISIS takes a city from us and the best message is when we take a city from ISIS. There is a reality on the ground. And part of the reason the Russians have been outmastered, outnumbered, uh, is because the reality on the ground isn't very good for them. Excellent. I, I really appreciate that insight. And, and Clint, I want to bring you in and see if, if I can't ask you to contrast that view of Russia uh, from the perspective of Ukraine's information operation during, uh, during this invasion and during this war. And particularly, if you wouldn't uh, talk to us a little bit about how you see and evaluate uh, President Zelensky's use of traditional and social and other types of encrypted media um, to what effect, um, what, what's the strategy, is it working, and so on. Um, and then also I wanted to ask you about uh, Mikhailo Fedorov, who's the Deputy Prime Minister, Ukraine's Minister of Digital Transformation, who has out and out declared World Cyber War One and been extremely focused on the digital elements of this war. Uh, there have been numerous uh, interesting stories of uh, him having great effect on, for example, convincing a Chinese drone company, uh, D, uh, DJI Global, uh, from geofencing their drones from working inside Ukraine by the messaging that he's been putting out. Um, so I just wanted to get your broad take on the Ukrainian side of this information war. Yeah, so thanks, Anand, and, and thanks for having me here. And I think that's the big surprise is that uh, in the converse to what Rick was talking about, which is this, it's not uh, top-down, vertical, linear, but it's robust and organized to a degree, the Russian approach. The Ukrainian approach, when it kicked off, was the opposite. Now, that doesn't mean they haven't had um, – support from the West in terms of training over the years, right? We, we've run these programs, the State Department has run programs, to run, the Department of Defense runs programs, talking about how do you do public affairs? And I don't think any of that mattered because 
you have a president who was an actor and he's really good on camera. So I think that this really reflects, you know, the parts of the system that matter. And oftentimes too much, um, we tend to think uh, a bot is going to overachieve what a real human will. And we take that human uh, being out of it. But President Zelensky, this is a time when it's great to have an actor who is your messenger, right? He's brilliant on camera. From what I understand, a lot of this production is done by people that used to do production with him. Uh, everything probably from script writing to filming, you know, visual production, those things are really important. And I think this is also a change from even Crimea and election 2016, when we started talking a lot about the information space and social media, is that uh, video is king now across all platforms. So you you've got platform changes over the last decade that make video enabled social media much more available and ubiquitous. TikTok is a prime example of that, but Instagram, YouTube, all of this is video enabled and everybody has a camera. So if I had gone and done, even uh, when I was doing ISIS research a decade ago, as they were starting to rise over Al Qaeda, they, they were putting out uh, kind of high gloss sort of videos, uh, tape, you know, cutting things with Adobe, you know, act, and it looks very bootleg compared to what you're seeing coming out of Zelensky and his administration. It's super dynamic. He's really good on camera. He's, you know, a natural at it. He does a great job of communicating. Separately, I, I think in terms of the distribution, it's been the power of the platform uh, whenever you're crowdsourcing your, your virtual army. And that's really, I think, uh, when you're talking about the, the deputy minister of Ukraine, um, what he's been able to do is he has no resources necessarily at his disposal, but he's got a worldwide audience that wants to help. And it, it's remarkable to watch because, please, for the audience, don't confuse too. He, when we watched terrorists a decade ago, they would use this approach, reach out to the diaspora community, you know, try and bring in supporters, try and bring in uh, back then remittance payments, those sorts of things. Fast forward a decade, now you're seeing nation states, a nation state Ukraine successfully use a similar type approach of crowdsourcing cyber armies, crowdsourcing materials, using cryptocurrencies, using gateways through Telegram to communicate and associate. And so a decade ago, we were talking about Twitter as the distribution platform. The information battle today is on Telegram. And that's where you see it in the Russian language, Ukrainian language. I'd had somebody ask me, well, where, what should I watch on Twitter? And I was like, don't. Like, unless you want to know what Americans are saying about it, you know, or some Western. But everything has been on Telegram for, you know, a good while. And I think that's because it's one of those ungoverned places. And it's a place where at different times we've complained a lot about Telegram not being moderated or regulated. Right now, you're seeing the Ukrainians use it to a successful degree to do distribution of content and connecting with like-minded audiences all around the world. I think the other part that's fascinating is there's a, a foreign fighter that I check on every morning. I can pull it up. He is on Twitter and he's soliciting donations. He's getting donations. He's coordinating shipments. Um, he's communicating in the English language back out to Americans and people in, in Europe. That's remarkable because we thought of it from the threat perspective a decade ago. That's what we saw adversaries, the non-state actors doing. Now we're seeing a nation state essentially you know, bring in a lot of manpower. And then the one that's most remarkable, I think, is uh, the idea of a cyber army. Uh, essentially, the deputy minister, Fedorov, he's just picking targets 
And then an, an army appears out of nowhere and starts working, you know, essentially at the behest of the Ukrainian government. They don't know who it is, but it also creates this weird sort of wrinkle over time. I think when we start talking about regulation and what we'll do, okay, if an American does, uh, I'm just hypothetical, an American does a cyber attack on a foreign target uh, that supports uh, Zelensky's administration, a target that they picked, a Russian website, whatever it might be, uh, is that a crime? You know, we're going to get into this weird sort of things. And foreign fighters, we used to worry about humans, you know, going into Syria to join ISIS. That was considered a terrible thing. We were always trying to control it. Now you'll see a flood of Westerners just going, buying tickets and walking into Ukraine and joining up legitimate with a legitimate army, like saying it overtly, like I am joining up with this army. So all of our like norms around how state conflict runs, I think will change because this is the first uh, social media powered state conflict, you know, state actor that I've seen use it in the same way that we traditionally have seen with non-state actors. I think the the last part that I'm I'm finding fascinating is anonymous, whoever they are, uh, is doing widespread attacks, lots of doxing. Um, you're seeing uh, Ukrainian soldiers get the phone numbers essentially of their adversary and doing psychological operations, direct text messaging kind of things to soldiers that are out on the front lines. This is remarkable. And then the last part, which comes down to information control, I think is a test like of time here in the, in the coming months is Russia has essentially been shoved off the Western internet to a large degree. Now they're tied up, you know, internally, you can go on uh, VK right now and they, they're like advertisements and tools to take your Instagram and move it to VK, which I think is interesting because Instagram is wildly popular inside Russia. So when that switch happens, can Russia really control? They are not China. They've never been able to control the same way uh, that China does. Will it drift in? Will the content drift in over time? Or it's really about audience segmentation, I think. And, and this is probably you know, a better question for Natalia, but who is on these platforms or was on these platforms in Russia? That's one audience that matters. Is that the military folks? Maybe not, right? Because the lower class tends to be recruited in. So you're communicating maybe with the higher class higher class socioeconomically may not care or may not react the way that we think they would. So just, I, I can see a million dissertations from the physical and virtual world coming out over the next year or two, just based on this dynamic landscape we, write, we have right now. I've never seen it in a state context. Clint, I, I wanted to ask you, so you mentioned Telegram and the use of it and the importance of it. Um, and uh, early on, we had a moment where Pavel Durov, the founder and CEO, uh, along with his brother of Telegram, said, OK, we're going to consider whether or not we're going to, in some ways, uh, you know, moderate uh, the speech that's happening on our platforms. Now, note to all of those who don't know who Pavel Durov is or his brother and the history of Telegram, uh, he is in an information and probably in most other ways, an extreme libertarian. He believes that uh, there needs to be freedom from all government uh, sort of, um, you know, uh, in his uh, conceptualization, oppression and uh, freedom to say and do whatever you want. He has always held that Telegram uh, will never moderate any kind of content. And that's the whole point of Telegram. So to hear him say, even at the beginning, hey, we are thinking maybe we might want to moderate something. And then he said, okay, we thought about it. 
we're not going to moderate uh, Telegram. And I think that that moment was a, was a really interesting moment because you could see him being tested on his libertarian views that he's espoused for years. And now you see that that, that has made a, a big uh, impact on the role of Telegram uh, in this war. And so my question to you is, Telegram and Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, and so on, how do you think, what do you think of the platform's policies uh, as you've seen them evolve uh, during the war in terms of, you know, how they're handling misinformation, how they're ru- handling Russian state news, how they're handling advertisements? Is there a difference between a Chinese-owned TikTok and a Western-owned, and American-owned, you know, Facebook and Instagram and, and WhatsApp and, and so on? So at least from my perspective, it's shocking. This is the first time I've seen the industry kind of all move together and do mostly the same thing. Usually there was one platform that sought to distinguish itself by doing something different or opposite of the other. And they all generally have moved. They have different kinds of problems. Um, So right out of the gate, TikTok had done uh, gone after official state accounts. But then there was coordinated authentic behavior, which is really the new danger in many ways. There were Russian content creators that were essentially being coordinated to push content up online that was disinformation. And they actually eliminated the ability of even content creation to a degree inside Russia for for at least a time period there. And so it's pretty remarkable that all of them have kind of shifted and moved with the exception of Telegram. And then the opposite has happened in Telegram, which is you've seen instead of um, Russia just dominating it all out, which they kind of were to a degree at one point. Now you've just seen this Ukrainian wave come back in and sort of surge against it, which I think will be instructive in the future of what a, a future information counteroffensive would look like in the sense that if you're going to have some sort of relay or portal, Telegram is essentially the relay between the Russian internet right now and, and the US Western you know, NATO internet. If you're going to have that kind of a relay, um, how do you handle it if you're not going to shut them off entirely? And essentially it is speed, volume, trusted source, no rebuttal, you know, keeping all those principles still in play the same way you would if you're doing an information campaign. And I liked what Rick said before that no one, Vladimir Putin doesn't check the 10 memes, you know, before they launch. The U.S. does. I mean, they go through an exhaustive review of content, you know, when Ultimately, it is a content war. You have to give the audience enough content to drive and thrive and share and, and seek to advance. And so far, Ukraine is doing it just by having a great messenger, a good system, engaging the public and using popular support essentially to drive their message. So I think there's tons to learn from, from what's happening right now that would be instructive for democracies as well as it goes forward. Natalia, I want to ask you, um, you and I have had a conversation offline about uh, the dramatic importance in this moment of China, of China's policy. Um, China obviously has uh, an extremely controlled information ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Um, The official Chinese national policy towards the war in Ukraine is extremely important, obviously, because they are the one sort Mm -hmm. of powerful global ally that Putin would look to rely on Mm -hmm. to have support uh, for his positions in this war. And the Chinese uh, population's opinion 
about the war is likely important for uh, the dynamic evolution of the Chinese policy. And yet the information is so dramatically controlled. So I wonder if you could comment about uh, the role of China, how Mm -hmm. important China is or isn't, as well as uh, the role of information uh, and the information war as it regards as it's related to content and um, and communications that gets to the Chinese people Mm -hmm. or doesn't uh, in terms of shaping that policy. Yes. So I have to start by saying that I haven't uh, in the past focused on studying Chinese news. It's an area that many other esteemed colleagues have studied. Um, but uh, as I as the conflict started, it became increasingly clear to me from uh, reading the analysis, from listening to my colleagues from political science uh, communities that uh, the Chinese position would be extremely important in this war. And it's, I think, very clear by now to many people that China is benefiting economically, right, as a country from this conflict. So in some sense, it it makes sense for them to prolong it, right? Uh, So just on economic uh, side of it. And it's also clear, so I, I, I do teach a course in international business, among other things. And it's clear that in terms of global commerce, um, there, there is a, you know, it, we are very reliant on China, so it's not very much we could do um, in terms of sanctions. I'm not going to say if, like we can do something, but it's it's much it's a very hard target, right? So uh, um, in and it's also quite quickly I learned from again my political science colleague uh, Josh Tucker that Chinese they have an analyzed Chinese news and they also to be what he said is using um, RT stamps, so they take Russian television story basically and push it into Chinese media and they censor. So I've, I've, you know, we've read in public accounts that even, um, uh, so Ukraine has a lot of educational institutions. So it's quite a lot of Chinese studying in Ukraine as well as doing business in Ukraine. When these people post, like I'm here in a bomb shelter in, in uh, WeChat, it gets censored. So the censorship seems to be very active in terms of what gets censored. Um, now, uh, uh, driven by, by the desire to do something, as many of us not in Ukraine feel quite helpless, so we try as we can, you know, with money, but so I, I try to see if something could be done. And um, uh, because I don't know this area, I'm not sure. But what occurred to me is, and I do think that this audience, the people you gathered uh, today for the summit have a role to play, um, because we could talk to people here, right? The people in the United States, in my class, I have a lot of people from China and all the audiences I teach to bring the truth. So one of the things that Zelensky often talks about is I don't want you to be pro-Ukrainian. I want you to be pro-truth. And some of these things are just true. You know, there are Russian um, missiles falling on my cities. It's just the fact. And the tanks uh, are right there. And this all is accurate information that I have no doubt about. Now, who is responsible for the conflict could, could be argued depending on your political positions. But if we could just show to people in China what's going on and inform them, I think it would be useful. And we do have some of these channels open through people here. And um, I think that this brings me back and I see an audience question about these friendship networks uh, and the role, potentially positive role of social media, which I know Sinan, given your book, is very minimal. <laughs> but if, you, if there is any uh, such role, 
it would be in sort of relying on this professional and um, other friendship networks to inform what to inform people who otherwise may not take side in the conflict what about what's going on and hopefully then inform others. So I actually talked to fellow IS academics with whom I'm working on a research paper uh, who happen to be from India, which is another market as to what their friendship groups in India are talking about. And it's like, well, we have a cousin group and then this cousin group on WhatsApp usually, which is a typical, like we do talk about this conflict and opinions are divided. So what I'm hoping is like, maybe we can use some of the influence we have in this forum and others and help have more forums to inform people here who can then hopefully deliver some information there. I also have one other remark, and that's about the language. And I heard, um, uh, you know, you yourself writing how Ukraine is winning the information war and um, uh, the fellow panelists are saying how this is happening. I am um, very doubtful that this is happening at scale in Russia or in markets like China. And just to give an example, so of course, one media that is, uh, we could access that's widely available in China is TikTok. So just this morning, I did a search in three languages on the term Ukraine in English, Russian, um, Ukrainian, and I did a Google Translate for the word Ukraine uh, in uh, Mandarin. And what I saw is very, very sad, right? So if I went and typing in the word Ukraine and Mandarin in my TikTok search, every single video was pro-Russian. Uh, some of them were violently pro-Russian. Some of them looked like fake to me. Some of them were this beautiful Russian women saying how, like, we, you know, that they are being abused and it looks very well done professionally, looks like to me, in, in Mandarin, the women are speaking in Mandarin. So I don't think we're paying enough attention. And I think it's unfortunately premature to say that Ukraine has won information war as widely. It has it's winning it, and, and I'm glad we do have Zelensky in the European kind of English-speaking communities in the US. But um, in Russia, many people still just get their news, not even from Telegram, but from the TV, as many of you know. And here again, it's not my area, but I do read. And as you probably know, right, so the Russian news was slightly less censored in the last 2014 until now as compared to what they are today. And that's important to acknowledge that it's not so clear to me that, you know, the, the, the things we are better at fighting information war in Russia because we have this eight years of experience because Russia shut down all the independent news channels. So the only people getting independent media in Russia, in Russian, are liberal people who know how to install VPN. And from what I've heard, a 5% of Russians have installed VPN. So that's take it as it is. Yeah, no, I think this is, uh, this is a really important point, especially the information environment in China and Russia. And in, in fact, in that article that you referenced that I wrote for the Washington Post about how, um, how Ukraine is winning the information war, I specifically sing, sing, single out TikTok and say TikTok as a Chinese-owned company uh, is the one that isn't moving in lockstep with the others. And when, when you do those searches, which I also did, and you, you see the, um, the channel that's been established called War Talk, it is unlike uh, what you see on a lot of the other channels. So I made sure to include that in the article precisely for the reason that you've stated. I want to actually kind of take a question from the audience and direct it at Rick, but I want to kind of uh, 
massage it a little bit, which is this is a this is a comment that I get a lot, a question that I get a lot when talking about these topics, which is basically, doesn't the U.S. use similar weaponized social media around the world? Um, you know, isn't that part of our information operations? Um, and you know, is there hypocrisy uh, when uh, the U.S. or the West, you know, talks about Russian misinformation, uh, but uh, perhaps engages in it itself? So. Um... Yes, I, I get that question myself a lot, Sinan. And, and maybe I was out of the loop when I was in government because nobody included me in those meetings where we're creating, you know, U.S. government memes pretending to be regular people. But, and, I, and I'm being ironic uh, because I found in government, to my great relief, and I, and I hope people, you know, believe me, that that there was very little of this that went on. Almost none of it at the State Department, none of it at the White House, maybe a little bit in the, at the Defense Department, but not to a great degree and, and not in the intelligence community either. I mean, the, the folks who are in government, and I'm talking about the kind of the, the you know, civil servants and foreign service officers, I mean, are so reluctant and hesitant to do the very things that were decrying to use the techniques of our adversaries. And I know that sounds, you know, earnest and sincere and, and, and all of that stuff, but that was my experience. And, and I'm pretty sure that hasn't changed. Um, one of the, you know, one of the reasons for that, and, and when I was in government, when we, when we talked about this, I, I would always bring up the idea that like, you know what, the, U, the private sector in the US does this to a degree that we in government couldn't even begin to approximate. Like why get in the way of what's happening already in the private sector? We just can't compete with that. I mean, it's like, you know, if you're, if you're good at creating content or messages or memes, you're not going into government. You know, maybe you'll used to go to Hollywood and maybe you used to go to New York in journalism, but now, you know, you're, you're, you know, making millions of dollars from ads on TikTok. So, um, uh, so the short answer to that question is that we we don't really do that. And um, I, I remember I remember once in, in uh, you know Clint mentioned you know doing counter ISIS stuff. I remember once sitting in the Situation Room at the White House and we were talking about you know what we could do. Uh, counter disinformation, you know, to, to people that ISIS was trying to reach or did reach. And, um, and, a, and a gentleman whose name would be familiar to you that I'm not going to mention, looked around the room and said, maybe we're not the best messengers for this message. And it was a bunch of, you know, white people. Um, and, and, and it was a smart point, because of course, people distrust any message from the US government by its very nature. And, um, and and we just we just don't do very much of that. And I think in part because we don't have to, in part because we're not good at it, and in part because it's counterproductive. You know, a government counter messaging is counterproductive. That was my you know one sentence experience when I was in government. Thanks for that, I, Clint. I want to ask you uh, about what I've seen uh, more front and center uh, during this 
particular uh, invasion and war than in any other geopolitical uh, circumstance that I've seen even in recent times, which is the rise of the importance of essentially uh, citizen surveillance, if you will. And there I'm talking about um, the widespread use and availability of cell phones, uh, you know, taking video footage of, and Natalia was mentioning this earlier, tanks are here, troops are there, bombings happen just now here, in addition to analysis of uh, publicly available satellite imagery, because we have private companies that make those satellite images publicly available, as well as even the use of Google Maps. I heard a story of a research team noticing a traffic jam along the highways going towards and into Ukraine in the, in the sort of hours before the invasion, signaling a mobilization of those forces across the border prior to them actually coming across the border. So I wonder if you could comment on the importance of the rise of the digital civilian citizen surveillance uh, ecosystem uh, in this war and therefore going forward. Yeah, I, I think this is the, the discussion in 2010 was uh, open source will become the high side. That was the theory uh, over time, meaning that classified is known as high side inside the government. Classified information would become um, smaller in volume and uh, more specific over time. And that a general understanding could be achieved um, through everything in the open source. I think that's what you're seeing. But with that, the volume of content and ability to create content makes it easier to make more propaganda and disinformation as well, which can skew perceptions around what's going on and create lots of confusion. And so if you have voices out in uh, the social media space, more voices putting out disinformation than the truth, regardless of whether it's war tracking or any issue, you're going to get into trouble over time because it will warp people's perceptions. Just a volume, you know, of content and then an availability bias to whatever content you encounter. So I think for those that are trained and know what to look for, um, it's fantastic. You can see and make out so much and you can go to different scholars, you know, in the war in Ukraine that are doing military work and you can really see fascinating work. Rob Lee, uh, Michael Kaufman, you know, some of these folks are basically giving you a battle day by day breakdown that's impressive. Now, they also, you know, in the news networks, I go on MSNBC, you know, a lot, and we're talking about battle tracking where the battle goes. It's difficult still, though, to fact check because you don't know who the source is of that information to such a degree that you can actually verify, like, yes, that phone was right there. That's what they were doing. That's what they were filming. So you can have a general understanding, but sometimes fact checking uh, gets even tougher, right? Because a news network can't have content, you know, someone out filming every content. And now you're trying to verify something and you're 99% sure that that's real, but you can't make a mistake, right? So it creates this perception loop. Another part that I find interesting is that um, that open source, I still don't feel as if governments and government intelligence services have really mastered that open source yet to where they almost are still behind a lot of folks that are out just working from their house. And, you know, there is a gentleman from Australia that did a battle map today. It was the best one I've seen. I have no idea who that is. He's in Canberra. And I saw it. I immediately followed him. And I'm like, whoever that is, they are fantastic. 
he looked to be like 25 years old. I don't know, but he's done all and assembled all of this. So it does provide a special power, though, to those that can figure that out and understand it, even from a government perspective. So, you know, if I they never put me in charge of the government, there's good reason for that, probably. But if I were in charge of the government, I would just say, hey, stop 50 percent of what you're doing. Now, let's take these very crazy intelligence tools you got and let's focus them off of this base layer of what everyone essentially knows. I think the last part is the element of surprise um, that they achieved in Crimea is gone. I mean, that is vanished now that we've sort of gotten a better baseline understanding of this. So they, the Russians used disinformation. They kind of fooled us. They fooled the world, the little green men, all those sorts of things. It was really brilliant how they did it. This time it did not work at all. Uh, the U.S. intelligence community was way out in front of it. The NATO partners were great. You're hearing it today. I think it was uh, GCHQ and UK. They came out and said, you know, this is what's going on. So they're adding that extra layer. Like we're doing intercepts. We know the troops are, be- are hungry and cold and, you know, the Russians are having trouble with logistics. So you can almost see how governments can work with their democratic populaces over time without instructing them or even telling them what to do to understand a situation. And then they can even be more efficient with their really cool tools to do things like satellite image beyond what is you know, already openly available that you and I can see at home or UAV drones. I, I've seen remarkable what look like Amazon purchased drones in Ukraine, giving you, you know, block by block layouts of what's going on in terms of a battlefront. That's just remarkable. Um, and that just leaves, you know, a few things out there that even the governments could use to tip the open source community too. much the way the Zelensky uh, federal, you know, they're using the public in this way. We could be doing that too. We say, hey, the Russians, they may have a naval armada. This is a great example for OSINT trackers uh, out in the Black Sea. And you would essentially push an army of thousands of OSINT hunters in the right direction. And so this is going to be a new paradigm shift, I think, over time for democracies. They don't have to be so scared about the Internet. They can learn to leverage it as well for good. I mean, one thing that I thought was a 180 and instructive in so many ways was the use of transparency as a strategic element uh, in this war. So the thing that struck me at the very beginning was the, uh, the flagging of the false flags out in public early and often. Uh, that, you know, it used to be that war was this clandestine activity, you know, and the, def- the Defense Department would get in front of the press and they would say, well, obviously, we, you know, we can't disclose any details and there won't right, be right. any talk of anything that's actually happening. But let me just give you the broad view. No, here it was sort of like there are 180,000 troops on the border. What we are hearing from our intelligence, our secret intelligence that only we should be knowing, I'm going to tell the entire world, we're expecting false flag operations to justify the war. They may look like this. They may be videos, this and that. Um, And and I thought that was uh, such a new thing uh, uh, in terms of using transparency as a weapon uh, in order to sort of foil what they what we saw in Crimea uh, happening uh, and and this time to much less of an effect. I want to turn to Natalia. And Natalia, I know that you have been speaking a lot in public. You've been doing um, different kinds of lectures. Uh, you've been having many different kinds of conversations. Um, I wanted to sort of give you the last word and to ask you, um, 
what is it that you want people to know? You know, whether it's the technically minded community, uh, the, the, the sort of digitally savvy community, uh, the, the students uh, who are either of Chinese origin or Russian origin or Ukrainian origin, um, you know, the, the, the governments that are involved, like what, what, are the, what, are the, what is the main message or the main messages that you think are really important for us to know and maybe we aren't hearing enough today? Thank you, Sinan, for giving me this opportunity, first of all. And I, I think what I'm going to say is not a big surprise to anybody, but it is what um, I think, again, um, President Zelensky has been saying. And it is that people, and that you've been saying in your book, right, we have to be active skeptics, not cynics. Like, I don't know. If, like, we really need uh, to keep checking the information and to not be lazy enough to, to say in this world of information over, overload, we will just pick you know, a trusted source or our echo chamber. And I think that's the first message is would be like, just go this extra step of connecting to multiple media, preferably in multiple languages. So my, my own day starts with news in all three languages. And also I check UK and US news just to see the balance between European and US. So I'm just, I know not everybody has the luxuries that academics have, but to have several significantly different sources of information and to question things is what I hope um, we do and what I actually hope we teach our kids, right? So that that is to me, and it would serve us well in other conflicts as well, right? That's on the basic. And the, the, the second thing I want the world to know is that at the end of the day, to me, Zelensky and many people there are more than actors. And I think that I would like to kind of, I've followed actually him, him as a person for years. And um, you could argue that he's acting in some of these videos, but if you've seen him in interviews and there was an amazing interview of the Russian independent journalist, which was not published in Russia, but which I encourage all of people able to access it language-wise to hear here, you see the authentic person that he is. So I've seen uh, leadership professors talk about how they should learn leadership from Zelensky. I think the number one thing is sort of goodness and authenticity. That is hard to fake. And um, I know I may sound like naive and overly patriotic here, but actually think that we have to choose whom we can actually trust and not be cynical. So this balance between skepticism and cynicism would serve everybody well. And there is a real war and people are dying and we shouldn't doubt that. And we should try to understand more about it uh, before just deciding to trust a single source. I really appreciate that. I wanted to add just one thought, which is something that really, really scares me uh, today, which is essentially that um, we have such rapid news cycles. Uh, and uh, what I am most concerned about is that as this war uh, goes into, you know, the, the many more weeks, many more months and so on, uh, that people begin to lose interest. And what I really hope happens is that we keep this every single day front and center of the conversation every single day. I don't go one day without talking about this, uh, whether it's in public or in private, uh, that it's happening, what's happening, what's the news today. Uh, I don't want this to be uh, sort of 
uh, for, for it to start to fall on deaf ears and people start to tune out because this is the most important thing happening on our planet at this moment uh, in an acute sense. And we have to treat it as such uh, until there is a, a satisfying resolution. To the three of you, uh, thank you so much, Rick, Clint, Natalia. Uh, this has been a fantastic and extremely important conversation. Thank you, everyone. The Digital Insider with Sanan Aral is brought to you by the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy, hosted by Sanan Aral, produced and edited by Carrie Reynolds. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Share today's episode and tag us on social media at MIT underscore IDE. To leave a voicemail for Sanan for the chance to have your question answered live on air in a future episode, call 617-468-8423, or you can email MITDigitalInsider at gmail.com. Visit our website, ide.mit.edu slash podcast for more.